The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. You're a terrible person, Kate. Sorry, this always, this is like the live button on YouTube stresses Ben out and we're live. It is Wednesday, August 18th, five o'clock on the dot Eastern time. Uh, I just want to say Kate's ease of taking us live, which you can see in her smirk, she is lording over me, is a, a reflection of the fact that she sold her soul to Satan and he will collect it upon her death. Um, but in the meantime, she sold it for a cheap price, ease of get going live on In Lieu of Fun so I can lord it over Ben. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, ben is in Michigan, uh, sitting by one of the Great Lakes. Wait, this whole thing, I'm in an undisclosed location, dude. Oh, did I fuck it up? Yeah, you fucked it up. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, yes, I'm in an undisclosed location in Michigan, along the coast of Lake Michigan. Um, uh, all right, now you've only got like 400 miles of coastline to work with. Yes, exactly, it's still pretty undisclosed. Um, we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Molly Crockett, PhD in neuroscience, professor of psychology at Yale University, friend of Kate Klonick, on the show today <laughs> to talk about uh, moral outrage and social media and also to tell the story of how we met, which I think is like a pretty good origin story. Totally. Should I tell um, the story? Welcome was, was that my well, cue to tell the story? <laughs> yeah. How'd you, how'd you meet Kate Klonick? Was there a live wild animal that required rescuing involved? Um, and um, uh, and yeah, let's start there. Um, what species of wild animal that required rescuing brought you together? Well, I don't know about rescuing, but there was certainly a wild animal involved by the name of Cecil the lion, which some of you might have heard of, um, and is featured in a paper of Kate's that I came across. And I came across this paper during my first year as a professor of psychology at Yale. And one of the passion projects in my lab is understanding moral outrage in social media. And I published a really short paper on this in 2017. And then when looking for potential collaborators at the law school, came, came across Kate's paper that was a way more in-depth and smarter version of my paper that she had published in 2015 and that I wish I had come across earlier. And when I found it, I'm like, oh my God, I have to meet this person and uh, talk to them about our mutual interests. And so I think I sent you an email and we yeah. uh, made a plan to meet up at, at Maury's, which is this very like Yale place that involves acapella singing and uh, I th yeah, I haven't been there a long time because COVID. But um, yeah, I just I remember it's that great. conversation like sparking so many ideas, and we have start started collaborating on on some of those ideas, and we'll we'll get to talking about those today. But um, um, yeah, I I am I have no legal training. My knowledge of the law is extremely limited, but it's been so fun 
over the past couple of years starting to learn more about this space. And so I am super excited to talk to both of you and hear from your listeners about our recent work and what implications it might have for the regulation of online spaceships, which is, uh, you know, your jam. And yeah, I'm going to I'm going to going to I'm going to soup up this story, which was like, basically, we're sitting in Maury's and like Molly walks in and I have I want to also say, like, I had no idea who Molly was. All I know is that, like, you contacted me and it says from MJ Crockett. So I like I actually didn't know. Like, I, I, I think I remember I was like, I didn't know whether you were a woman or a man. So I just was like, agreed awesome. to meet this person like, <laughs> at, at Maury's. And I had literally no idea who I was looking for. And we were the only ones in there. And we sat down. And like, you kind of told me what you wanted to study and you told me your background. And I just kind of like, I remember I was just like my eyes and like, I remember like my heart racing around. I was like, this person is my person. I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like, wait a minute. For, but for those of us who don't know the content in question, yeah. walk us through what were the, the Cecil the Lion online sure. outrage papers that you both wrote that brought you together. Yes. So Molly was basically came in and was really interested. Her background is in neuroscience. I, as people on the show know, I have a background in neuroscience and cognitive science. Um, and she was just really interested basically. And what one of the things was is that like, I my background is, is like kind of uh, self-taught. Like I don't have, I didn't go to graduate school for social science. Um, well I did, but for professional science, I guess you would say. Um, and law. <clears throat> and I had, I had like a touch of like I have like a, I have a knowledge of how to read really deeply like empirical papers. Um, I have like ideas for experiments, but like I myself do not have the time, energy, resources, or know-how to basically come up with empirical projects to test a lot of empirically a lot of like the things that I think happen in social reactions to the internet and kind of moral intuitions about the internet or law. And so kind of like Molly walked in and she was like, I read your paper on online shaming. And this was but about wait, Cecil which, Lyon. Which, so this was about, like, I'm telling go you. Go back, I'm tell us you. about the paper. Yeah, I'm telling you about the paper. But so like the, the, the paper was basically a paper that was about how law treated shaming. So shaming generally is thought to be kind of the internal and persons like uh sorry excuse me an external response by people in when there is some type of norm violation guilt by contrast is an internal infliction of kind of like norm of like kind of feeling bad and punishing yourself when you violated so you feel like you violated some type of norm whereas like shaming is like what we as a society kind of individual and then collectively kind of do when there's been a norm violation so this is kind of interesting for the law because in theory and there was a period in like the 1990s when a bunch of like very hoity-toity fancy pants uh professors of law like got this idea of shaming and were like how can we utilize this to use norms to enforce behavior and like instead of using the law and law and prisons and fines and locking people up and this turned out to be a terrible idea because shaming for a lot of reasons has no boundaries it's hard to rein back in it's hard to control it's you know just by definition um 
But nevertheless, like kind of I so this paper had taken that kind of body of work that had looked at shaming as kind of a, a as a alternative to imprisonment for nonviolent crimes. And then it had kind of put together like the internet. And this is before the internet was big that it happened in the 90s. And then I had added like, well, now we have the internet. What is going on when someone violates a norm? How is shaming being used? And one of those examples was the Cecil the Lion story. So Cecil the Lion was the dentist, Arnold, uh, Arnold, Arnold Palmer. It's not Arnold Palmer, it's Walter Palmer. I almost, but I always say. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good drink though. I know. Um, Walter Palmer was this dentist who'd gone to Africa. He had shot this beloved and very old legendary lion on this on this kind of reserve. And he had t posted pictures of it to social media. And this had set off this massive bout of shaming. I think he lived in Minnesota and like people Great went to Great radio house. lab episode, by the yeah. way, about- I am in not, that radio not, lab episode. Not this uh, incident, but a very similar incident involving a black rhino. Yeah, so yeah. So basically there, I used that incident and a couple of other slightly different, but kind of like one variable off, I would say episodes to kind of show all of the different kind of valences of shaming why the internet made it kind of unhinged now it's kind of common commonsensical but at the time like not a lot of people were looking at it and so i think that this was like i think that was like 2016 2017 that you contacted me so it was only like a year old the paper and so molly basically was like interested in the, that exact kind of phenomenon but instead of doing kind of this qualitative thing which i had done which was describe all these stories and kind of then kind of use words to describe what had happened to them. You wanted to do like a more rigorous kind of like empirical thing of like, let's look at it in bulk. Let's look how like outrage travels. Let's look about how we impose norms and morals on other people on the internet. And so we had this meeting and it was just like- Wait, 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 really before we get to the yeah. meeting, Molly, yeah. tell me about your paper yeah. And, yeah. and your discovery of Kate's paper and why you sought the meeting. Yes. Okay. So this was a paper that I published in 2017. And while Kate's paper is focusing on, I, would it be correct to say like normative questions around like, you know, how the law really ought to treat shaming and, 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 and how that might live in the age of the internet. Um, I was coming from a descriptive place where I wanted to understand how uh, the brain's reward system, and in particular, the capacity to learn from rewards, might have a side effect of amplifying moral outrage online, because it had already become very clear by 2016, 2017, when I was working on my first paper in this space, that expressions of emotions and moral emotions in particular are particularly likely to go viral online. Um, and so my collaborator, Billy Brady, showed in 20, 2017 that when you express moral emotions online, you get a ton of likes and retweets. And that, of course, is reinforcing. So if you just take the basic biological fact of reinforcement learning, which is that if you reward a behavior, it becomes more likely in the future just because it has been rewarded then you create a situation where if algorithms are amplifying engaging content, a lot of which happens to be moral outrage, and the individuals who express that outrage are getting disproportionate levels of likes and retweets, those social rewards, 
because the algorithm is you know, exposing them to more people, then that could increase the propensity of individuals to express more outrage over time. Not necessarily because they actually feel more outrage, but because it's getting rewarded. So that was so, a paper that I had written, and I was really interested in the sort of potential implications for the law and for policy, but I don't have expertise in that space. So I was looking on the Yale Information Society Project website and came across the description of Kate's research, and I and, and then I found the paper, like, oh my god, like this is the person who I want to talk to uh, about this. So does that make more sense now, Ben? Indeed, but I have a, I have a follow-up question. So walk us through the Cecil the Lion online response, which was, for those of you too young to remember it, Paula, um, uh, uh, a ferocious no, uh, uh, anger directed at this guy who had... Uh, Bought a essentially license to kill this uh, this lion on a on a I believe Zimbabwean uh, uh, reservation. Um, how does this fit into uh, the theories that you're developing about uh, online outrage? Do you want me to go, Mal, or do you want me, uh, or you um, want to go? It's a yeah. I'm not quite sure how to answer this question because um, Cecil the lion is uh, a wild animal, so that's why I use the example because you were asking. I think yeah, in jest it's not about like, yeah. But I wouldn't use that as the central example necessarily for illustrating this phenomenon. And one thing I do. Oh, I, okay. So, sorry. Yeah. So yeah. No, I, it was, I, it was I, I took your joke serious. Oh no, I took your fine. joke seriously. It's fine. So what? What are the? So give us. Walk yeah. us through a a sort of more central example, animate or not, named Cecil or not, uh, that that represents the kind of thing that you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to take that, Kate? I mean, I, like the, the sort of, the example that that comes to mind the most, like probably Justine Sacco is a, is a poster child for this kind of thing. Um, yeah, so we can describe Justine Sacco. So people probably, have heard about this again there was a radio lab about it there was also um it was the center i think there was this american life about it, it was the center of john ronson's book so you've been publicly shamed um and uh the story of justine zacco is really interesting and kind of i i did talk about it in the paper the story is that she is this woman who is in pr for um, this is kind of like that is a slightly important valence because some of these things are it's hard to like kind of create a classifier for these things and we'll talk about that what that means in a second but like Justine Sacco is a young white woman in New Jersey working for some big conglomerate in PR or something like that and she has like a hundred Twitter followers but her account is open in public and she tweets as she gets on a plane to go to South Africa from New York um, on my way to Africa hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. What am I talking about? I'm white or something like that. Like that was basically like that's that was the, the, the gist of the tweet. This tweet gets sent to someone sends this to Sam Biddle, who is a reporter at Gawker at the time, which still existed. And Sam Biddle basically just makes a Gawker post that says really great PR job, basically, like and puts the like an embeds the tweet 
like on the front page of Gawker and people go ape shit. Like people just go completely nuts. So she is, I want to just like emphasize like this is a couple, like an hour after she's tweeted this, she's on a plane, it is taken off. It's a 13 hour flight or something like eight hour flight, something very long to get to South Africa. In the time that the flight is in the air, she is fired from her job. She is like condemned by like many politicians, like all people and, and like and like like uh, public figures in Africa and AIDS uh, and do, doing AIDS research and work. She gets to South Africa and finds all of this out. And there are people who are waiting at the airport. They have created a hashtag to be able to talk to each other that are waiting at the airport to publicly like approach her and yell at her and berate her for what she's like said. And this, I mean, basically the story goes that she just like never really recovers from this. Her career doesn't recover. Like she gets, she loses her job. She has like a long time finding a new one. Every time you Google her name, this is like the first thing that comes up. So she has to kind of reinvent her entire life. And the reason that we use this as kind of a proxy is that if you think about norms as these soft kind of like morally in intoned or morally valenced in some type of way, and this is like where they become normal, what is moral and what is normative, it's like a hard line to, to like determine. Um, and you can, Molly, talk more about that. But like the general thing is just like, there are a couple of things that the internet takes away from normal conceptions of shaming that I think are like are good to talk about, which is like in the day of the Scarlet Letter, right? If you were going to shame Hester Prynne, you had to like, and she was in the stockade, you had to physically walk to the stockade and take time and like time out of your day to like walk there and yell at her. You had to use your own face to do that. Like you had to use yourself and your body to like go and shame her. So other people saw you shaming her and if some point in the future, it turns out that she wasn't, didn't do something bad or something else, maybe you would be seen as wrongfully shaming her or something like that. So like that was a part of it. It takes energy. So like there's kind of it, so it's not costless. And like all of these things, and it's infinite. I should also say that, that like the, the, the ability to do this kind of lives forever. And none of these things exist online. Um, Sorry, the ability to do this is time subscribed, but online it's infinite. And so all of these things are completely changed online. All of these frictions are completely eviscerated. And so shame travels much faster. It becomes expressive to other people of other types of things, which is kind of what Molly has ended up kind of looking at a lot with the moral outrage work. And so to kind of test this, these types of ideas and how empirically this happens, Molly built and her lab built like a class of what's called a classifier. So Molly, do you want to talk about the classifier? Yeah. And, and before I do that, I just want to highlight a really important distinction in this line of work. And actually there's some really wonderful comments and debates happening in the chat that illustrate this really well. I think that the goal of both Kate's research in this space and my research in this space is not to answer the question, was it right or wrong that Justine Sacco suffered the consequences that she did? Like, there are a variety of opinions on that that I can see in the chat. I think what's, what's really fascinating about this question is that this is a new phenomenon. 
moral outrage, shaming, and punishment have been around as long as civilization. And there's even some debate of whether like the precursors of those emotions and behaviors can be seen in our um, non-human primate rel relatives, right? But like the scale of it and the, the way that it unfolds is fundamentally different with the advent of online social networks. And those facts of how it's different, I think have really important normative implications, right? So our contribution is to test some of the, some of the assumptions that we might have about the propagation of online outrage through social networks and indeed how individuals in those networks decide to express outrage. But as Kate mentioned, in order to be able to study moral outrage on the internet, you have to be able to measure it. And it turns out that's like, it took us like three years to, 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 to build the tools to do that. But now that we have the tool, um, it is, uh, it opens up a lot of possibilities for doing a lot of really cool observational studies um, combined so, with lab so, studies. So, so why don't you start by yeah. describing the tool, yeah. what, what it can measure and what you're using it for? Exactly. So um, this this work was led by um, Billy Brady, a postdoc in my lab, um, along with Killian McLaughlin, who's a PhD student, and Tuan Yuen, um, who was a, a, a Duan, who is a, an undergrad at Yale in, in the data science program, and now um, is working in the tech industry. And what we basically do is we take um, out of the box machine learning methods, we, we ended up using a deep neural net um, combined with um, theory from social psychology about what moral outrage is. So um, we take a very large set of tweets, um, 26,000 that we had gathered from Twitter during online shaming or, or um, not shaming, uh, you know, episodes of public outrage. Um, most of those were uh, political outrage. So we had um, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, we had um, Trump's uh, transgender ban in the military, we had the Covington Catholic high school students uh, incident in um, Washington, DC. Um, we had um, the Jesse Smollett, uh, hate crime claiming incident, and um, we had one episode of non-political outrage, the uh, United Airlines viral video when the passenger uh, refused to get off the flight and was... Uh, and they beat him. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Everyone loves to hate on United Airlines. <laughs> that I, is universal. I, I have though. to say, when I watch that, 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 that video, you know, they, they can't give you... Uh, uh, water more than every two hours, but if you pay the right cost, they can beat you. I I, I enjoy. I, I thought the outrage against United was well deserved, and only prompted by the uh, the video, not actually a response to it. Exactly. So we selected these incidents because there were a lot of tweets about them, and we expected there to be a high prevalence of moral outrage in those tweets. And then we need to get labels for those tweets to train the classifier because, of course, not every tweet in these data sets is going to express outrage. And we need to be able to feed our software a big bucket of tweets and have it make predictions, essentially, the likelihood that a, a human coder would uh, label that tweet as 
indeed containing outrage or not. And so we had a group of uh, annotators. Um, these were volunteers. Um, go through each tweet by hand and say whether it has outrage or not. And then we take a sort of majority rule. So we show each tweet to uh, around 10 annotators. And then if a majority of them say that it's outrage, then that tweet gets labeled as outrage. And then we use that to, to train our classifier. Um, the criteria that we gave to the annotators comes from social psychological theory. And essentially um, the uh, definition that we use is uh, a tweet contains uh, outrage if the expression um, references feelings that people have in response to a perceived violation of their personal moral standards. That's the first point. Those feelings include emotions like anger, disgust, and contempt. And then the third point is that those feelings are associated with specific types of reactions that people want to see happen, like blame, holding them responsible, wanting to see them be punished. So we have now this data set of, of labeled tweets and we run it through um, our machine lear learning algorithms. And what we have now is software that is freely available on the internet um, to researchers who want to use this in their research. Um, and it's linked in our paper. Um, and it, it does pretty well at a sample. So um, we're, we're getting you know reasonably high um, accuracy levels uh, for the tweets. I would need to look up the exact number, but it's sort of between 70 and 80% is what we typically see accuracy, which is about as good as uh, social media companies themselves are getting in terms of their prediction scores for anything that's a complex human emotion, right? So we feel pretty uh, pretty proud of our little ragtag team of, of three uh, getting scores that, you know, Facebook and Twitter have, you know, dozens of engineers working on full time. No, it's awesome. I, so what I kind of, so we've talked about kind of, so both of us are, are typically, I think that both of our previous work has been like really around descriptive, like describing what's happening. And that's yeah. definitely what this classifier in this paper is about. Yeah. But kind of in your wildest dreams or like in the immediate future, what do you think, how do you think this research is useful to kind of the problem of shaming online or the issues associated with kind of moral outrage that we kind of frequently talk about? Well, I think in the immediate future, I see two useful applications. Um, the first is just being able to address, like to, to ask questions like the one that we asked in our paper, which is if you get more likes or retweets for expressing outrage in a tweet, do you then become more likely over time to express outrage? And we do find that. Um, and we find that effect is particularly strong for users who are in politically moderate social networks. So we can use other tools to measure the political ideology of social networks online. And what's really interesting is if, if you're in a network with a lot of ideologically extreme folks, there's gonna be a lot of outrage around and you're gonna follow the crowd and express outrage too but you're gonna be less sensitive to how much reward you get because you're more just sort of shaping your behavior, you're conforming to the crowd. But if you're in a network where there's less outrage, you're actually more sensitive to the direct rewards that you are getting for expressing outrage. So it seems like in moderate networks, folks are especially sensitive 
to uh, the reinforcement side of um, of the platform. So when the case of like Jesse Smollett or the Covington boys, in both of those instances, what's kind of interesting about them descriptively is that they started as one type of story where you thought one type of thing was happening. Like liberals thought that like these anti-Trump boys were like, or the pro-Trump MAGA boys were coming and shaming a Native American. And then like over the, like the, the next couple of hours more came out. In the Jesse Smollett case, you have a black man who's say, claiming that like a bunch of people beat him up and called him a bunch of terrible things. And then that turns out that he's like that he's faking it. Did you were you able to measure over time the shift of like, is there a backlash for people that like were super morally outraged to begin with? Or can they just like hop on the next bandwagon or something? Like, how does it work? That's a great question. And we haven't looked at the dynamics over time at the crowd level, but that's certainly something we're really interested in. Um, I think that the the main takeaway for me, aside from just being able to answer scientific questions, um, and again, you know, a question I get asked a lot is like, oh, so like, should we use this tool to just like turn down all the outrage in the feed? And I don't know if, like, I really want to be like, be clear in making the point that like, moral outrage on the internet itself is not inherently a good thing or a bad thing. It really depends on the context. And the moral outrage is a really powerful tool that you know, social movements can use to change public opinion to, you know, uh, enact changes over time. Um, but it also, as we have seen over the past few years can be used to motivate a lot of really ugly stuff and you know, actions that are threatening to democracy. So, you know, it's it's not a, a straightforward question whether like moral outrage online is a problem um, in and of itself. It's really the context that matters. Um, and I think that for me, what I'm most like what I would love to hear your thoughts on in the sort of content moderation and tech policy space. Social media platforms have been claiming since the beginning and they continue to claim that, oh, we're just like a telephone line. Like, like we're just a, like we're a conduit or a mirror for conversations that people would otherwise already be having. And now they can just have those same conversations that they would have on, offline with more people. And I think that our data shows definitively that this is just not true, even though this is a very obvious insight from psychology. Like, as soon as you have engagement based um, you know, newsfeed algorithms, you are, you are rewarding particular types of expressions on that environment. So it would be like, you know, if on this, you know, video, video call, every time the topic steers to a particular uh, uh, topic, we would get like a little electric shock or a little dopamine jolt in our brain. And so like the platform itself and the incentives that are been built into that are shaping the content of people's expressions online over time. But, but doesn't it matter what you're expressing moral outrage about? For example, if say 20 million women and girls in Afghanistan are suddenly at risk of you know terrible terrible things right. 
and you express moral outrage about that, that seems like a wholly defensible response to a set of true facts. Yes. Or at least to a, a set of anxieties that are driven by true facts. I. It is true that the Taliban is now in control of Afghanistan. It is true that the Taliban has oppressed women and girls in a fashion that is uh, as brutal as it is fanatical. And it is therefore reasonable to be anxious that that will happen in the future and to be morally outraged at that possibility and what, to whatever extent one feels this way, as I do, uh, at the U.S. role in allowing this to happen, if it in fact does happen. That strikes me as one kind of moral outrage. Another kind of moral outrage is, and I think it would measure the same on a moral outrage scale, but it wouldn't and shouldn't measure the same on a content moderation scale, is like, Bill Gates wants to inject a tracking device into my veins using a, uh, 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 the vaccine, the so-called vaccine, as a, you know, as a pretext. And I'm outraged that this isn't about public health. It's all about, and just for the Liz Wheelers out there who are going to quote me saying this, uh, I'm not speaking in my own voice here. I'm speaking in the voice of, you know, people like you. Um, uh, um, you know, people are like, I'm morally outraged that the society is forcing me to do this, right? Exactly. Uh, and, and so then you have moral outrage that is built upon layers and layers of falsehood. Yes. And it strikes me that those are, rather different moral, like rather different public policy problems. Yes. But they're not different on the outrage scale of one to 10. So how do exactly. we how do we deal with the cognitive difference between moral outrage that is, you know, leave aside the question of whether it's justified, it's predicated on factual truth. Some yeah. people can be outraged by you know, Cecil the lion, but that is a true thing that some dentist in Minnesota did buy a license to shoot Cecil the lion, did shoot him, did post and stuff, whether it's worth the degree of outrage, it's not different question. I'm outraged by the Taliban and women. Uh, and some people are outraged by, you know, the 5G network planting stuff in their brains. Um, from an outrage perspective, they're all the same from a public policy perspective they're rather different so talk me through um talk me through that and how how you handle it if you do that is such a great question you've really hit the nail on the head i think which is that you're absolutely right. There is outrage that's grounded in reality and there's outrage that's grounded in dis or misinformation. And the mechanisms that we identify, the social reinforcement of outrage, doesn't care, doesn't distinguish between the two. And that's what we're concerned about. It, at the same time that you have you know, outrage about a 
reality-based, you know, event of public concern getting reinforced by social feedback, you also at the same time have what you might call misguided outrage um, that is getting amplified and reinforced through the exact same processes. And we even have some preliminary evidence um, to suggest that you know disinformation is really engineered to trigger outrage because it's more likely to go viral and spread. So one project that we have been doing and um, and is is in the pipeline is asking the question, does disinformation attract more outrage than information that is is from legitimate news sources? And can we see whether outrage contributes to the spread of disinformation online? And um, so far, our results you know, suggest that that our, our hunch is unfortunately correct, um, that the, the types of um, processes that we identify with the, the, the fact of viral outrage certainly um, seems to be at play in the spread of, of false information. So I want to say something kind of interesting, which is like, yes, there are kind of, I, we gave some Cecil the Lion examples. We have the, we have like the Covington boys that are like, a, you know, the liberal outrage at that was misplaced. Uh, same with the Jesse Smollett. So there's questions of it being misplaced, but to Ben's question of like when it's righteous, when the moral outrage is correct, I think that like one of the descriptive questions that would be interesting to say, once you can discern, if you could discern between those two, and I actually kind of wonder if you can, like I I don't know that you necessarily could based on everything you just said and just, I don't know. I think that like, I think that they're, it's a very subjective, subjective kind of determination. But would you, if you could wave a wand and change something about how the algorithms work, Molly, like what do you think that you would change? Oh gosh, what a um, what a great question. Um, yeah, I like if you could wave a wand and distinguish between outrage motivated by. Uh, here, so yeah, actually, here's here's one. Here's one idea. We know that some outrage is really strategic and deliberative and the you know you could imagine someone scrolling through social media reading about what's happening in Afghanistan feeling really upset about it thinking this is wrong sitting and contemplating and and deciding in a really intentional de deliberate way i think this is wrong i want to add my voice to the conversation online and say that I think this is wrong and why. And there is outrage in that expression that comes from a place of intention and deliberation. Hmm. And you could imagine, you know, another type of outrage that is knee jerk. You know, I see a headline. I don't even bother to read the article or check whether the information is reliable. It just triggers something in me that is, you know, a knee jerk reaction and I express outrage, but maybe it's not well-informed or coming from an intentional place. And I don't honestly know whether 
those psychological processes would be detectable in language. But if they were, and I could build a classifier to detect between those two, then you could imagine public good coming from tamping down the unintentional knee-jerk kind of outrage while preserving the intentional outrage. Yeah, totally. I think that that, that seems right. We have, I'm bringing in audience um, members just so this is like to ask questions. And we're going to start with Mike Larkey, um, who asked a question that actually like two or three people posed, which I guess is, oh no, I'm having trouble making him reappear. Oh man. Um, okay, we're gonna, Mike, we're gonna bring you out and have you come back in again. But in the meantime, we'll have uh, Ev ask her question. Ave, so nice to see you. Yes, uh, nice to see you too. Um, actually, are you in the, oh wait, are you in the, uh, uh, the outside the RV office? Absolutely, yeah, I just, I just uh, changed background since I have like kind of more professional uh, meeting this morning and i didn't want to be in front of the van so i decided that uh, trees would be better than a vintage van and being british columbia the teeth the trees are unbelievably tall there are yeah it is amazing all right i've distracted you enough no worries uh yeah so i'm asking a question about the algorithm which i'm always kind of anxious about since like Lots of bad stuff are asked, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. Um, do we know if the algorithm deciding to post that should be amplified uses classifiers of the like that of the one you develop, like to see really like okay, this is moral outrage. I will promote it. Um, or is it just like oh, moral outrage, more like more retweet, more stuff, then it goes higher. So. So I don't actually know the answer to your question because uh, social media platforms don't release the the secret sauce behind their their algorithms. I don't think that that outrage is specifically being optimized by newsfeed algorithms. I think it's a more generic uh, uh, metric of just engagement and and you know what users you know are likely to click on and engage with in their feed. And then that kind of information gets promoted over time. Um, it just so happens that outrage is like one of the most engaging things because it has a really adaptive value for us. Like it's really, really important that we know what people in our social group think is right or wrong so that we don't do those things. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. I think that it's not like they set out to like specifically be like, let's target outrage. I think it's that outrage is a proxy some often for engagement and engagement is what they target. And so sometimes that is positive and sometimes that is negative, but you can at least in a small sense, like split it off as outrage. And that is kind of useful. But speaking of outrage, we have Mike's question. Go ahead, Mike. Nice to see you. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so my first question when I, when we start talking about this is what makes outrage moral as opposed to, some other kind of outrage are there other kinds of outrage you know if someone doesn't want to get vaccinated is it moral because they're like endangering others or is it just practical because you're being endangered uh does it co-occur with other kinds of outrage what 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 is the moral outrage of it exactly yeah i also will just like ask that kind of i think that there was also a request in the questions but from daniel but he's like disappeared but 
basically to define what moral what moral what makes something like moral outrage versus other types of things. Yeah. So um, so the definition that that we used uh, to develop our classifier and to do our research comes from social psychology, and that's basically it's defined by the moral values of the person expressing it. So, and this is a really important point, I think, because like, you know, I, as a liberal, like, wouldn't feel outraged about something that a conservative would feel outraged about, but I can recognize moral outrage in a conservative. I can understand that they have a set of moral values, even though they're different from mine. And if those uh, values are violated, in their eyes, then they would feel outrage. And likewise, if I believe that someone or something has, you know, violated a norm that I hold dear, I would feel outraged about that and have emotions like anger, disgust, contempt. Those emotions can also occur outside the context of a moral violation. Um, but that's how we define it. Yeah. So. <clears throat> to kind of like follow up on Mike's question, and this is something that I've always struggled with, is, and I think actually Josh Nob was on the show a couple of weeks ago, um, and so we talked about it with him when he was talking about some of his research, but like, what is the difference between morals and norms? I mean, like, not colloquially, but like in how you specifically study them. I mean, I think that people- One is what to... we type in the chat with an exclamation mark and the other isn't. That's the difference. Yeah, I know. There's a joke about norms on, on the show, Molly, because I say it all the time and I'm constantly talking about it, so people make fun of me. But go ahead. Well, so in psychology, we, can, we distinguish between um, descriptive norms, which is like, what most people are doing and prescriptive norms, which is what most people think others ought to do. And it's those prescriptive norms that are more closely tied to morality. And you could think of morality as comprising a system of prescriptive norms. Sometimes people also refer to proscriptive norms, like like what you should do and shouldn't do, right? Um, so that, that's how I think about the relationship. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to kind of think of it. And on top of all of that, I would say is like, is is law, which is kind of like right. an actual kind of formal formalizing of like some of those ideas um, into kind of something that is like you're allowed to do or not allowed to do. But law has a, a much more complicated relationship with morality than norms do, I think. Because than law does with norms? Well, yeah, there are some laws that are uh, that don't reflect anything about the way the society, what the society that enacts them regards as moral. They are simply uh, uh, codifications of what works to make things work better. For example, when there's a traffic light that says, you know, you have to stop at the red light, there's no uh, moral code that says, yes. hey, you have to give somebody else the chance to cross the street. There's merely a sense that the society will work better. Uh, and then there are these regulatory laws, and Crime a Day, of course, has a field day making fun of these. But um, there are these regulatory rules that have no moral content at all. Um, they're just embodiments of something that makes and these are 
we think of these as particularly irrational because they carry criminal penalties, which we associate with, with moral sanction. But in fact, the regulatory environment is replete with stuff that we attach no moral value to at all. Whereas I think norms do tend to track more closely with expected human behavior that's based in some way on a kind of understanding of the way we treat each other that's rooted more in morality. I mean, I think that, sorry if I'm going to answer for you, Molly, but I think okay. that like what Molly is saying about descriptive norms versus pres like prescriptive norms kind of gets at that. Prescriptive norms are more rooted in morality, whereas descriptive norms are like, we go up, like we walk, we when we're going up and down stairs, you stay to the right. Like there's nothing more morally inflective about like staying to the right other than don't be a fucking asshole and walk on the left. Although that is, you know, like, but like there's nothing, but there's nothing like kind of the, 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 the that rule but, is but not there, like. But there are rules that are, so that one you could say is based in courtesy, right? That if you don't walk, if everybody walks or on the right. Or if everybody walks on the right, fewer people will block each other. Fewer people will bump into each other. There'll be less, you know, unintended incidents of people dropping their stuff or uh, less opportunity for groping, you know, all kinds of things that aren't like just less opportunity for human friction. So it's polite if everybody follows that norm. There are laws that have zero moral content. Like, you shall not appropriate the image of the Swiss coat of arms. There is a criminal law that says that. Now, we attach zero moral sanction to using the, the Red Cross thing. Um, but there's, a, you know, the Smokey the Bear logo. Ditto. Criminal law on that point. The, you can't say these are embodiments of some moral code. On the other hand, most norms reflect some sense of how we should treat each other. Well, moral norms do certainly, but I think there are descriptive norms that don't have moral content. So I, mean, I think there, these are orthogonal dimensions we're talking about here, at least the way we, we talk about norms in psychology. You have descriptive versus pre-proscriptive, which is the contrast between how people actually are and people's beliefs about how we ought to be on the one hand, and then in descriptive land, how people actually are, quite a lot of actual behavior follows what people think is right or wrong. So like most people don't go around smacking people's face and then that is illegal, um, but also- Or like, appropriating the Swiss coat of arms. <laughs> but um, plenty of descriptive norms, like you know, we wear a particular kind of clothes to the office versus at home, um, have no um, moral content. And um, I think this past year has been a great example of like how uh, non-moral norms can shift over time. But I, one question that I'm really fascinated in lately is sort of the blurry lines between, between norms that are like very clearly moral and norms that um, many people would think are arbitrary but do get moralized. So, um, we could have a whole separate episode on no, that. Actually, like, it's funny that you mentioned, like, the like the being, like, told to wear something to the office. Because if that, 
actually if something like I don't think about that like I don't feel like some type of moral but it would become valenced in kind of like my my liberty or my freedom if someone decided to suddenly pass a law that said that I had to wear something specifically to the office versus at home like right so there are so is that kind of what you're talking about is like how like kind of our relationship with some type of idea changes like from a moral perspective like if it's taken away or regulated yeah, that's one angle that's one angle of it but i think there's also just an interesting set of questions around like if you were to wear if you were to show up at your office wearing pajamas like probably some people would judge you harshly and you might even suffer consequences in your job for doing that when other people might not bat an eye and so there's this like interesting kind of gray area between like norms that we follow because there are obvious welfare consequences for other people and norms that we follow just because like there's a tradition to do that and like it, it, we've always done it this way and so if you do it a different way you're seen as weird and deviant and like i think the human mind just blurs the line between deviant and bad and it's worth asking like are there instances of that that we should be re-examining I love that. I, I want to propose one right here where the human mind, our norms tolerate a lie. Um, and it's not considered lying, but it's clearly untrue. Um, and I don't think we should be tolerating it. So all the time people text at me, LOL, when they did not, in fact, laugh out loud. And I hate that. I feel like I have a reliance This interest. is my hobby horse. You are not allowed to steal this. I've been on this hobby horse forever, since, like, before you were born. I, I hate it when people LOL me when they're, when they're not. And I'm glad you're recently on this case, Kate Blonick. But, no, but, like, it's the norm is it's perfectly okay to lie to people and tell them you laughed out loud. My favorite did. thing to do is call people out on this. Like if I text, if I'm like texting them and we're in a call right now and I texted Molly and she texted back, LOL, I'd be like, fuck you, you're not laughing. Like, oh you're my not God. laughing. Please like, don't take LOL away from me. I mean, <laughs> I, I believe I reserve, I LOL somebody when and only when I actually laughed out loud because I feel like they are, um, uh, entitled when I say laugh out loud to take it at face value. That is a norm. I feel moral outrage about it every time I get an LOL when I don't know is that the is Genevieve Delaferra actually laugh out loud? I don't know what Usually. I don't know where I stand, you know? Um, and it's terrible. Um, I have to say very quickly, we have to introduce you to Genevieve. This is Genevieve. She is also a co-host on A Little Hi. Fun. She's a former um, student of mine at St. John's Law School. And uh, But she has the next question for you. Um, and yeah, go ahead, Genevieve. Ask whatever you want. You don't have to stick to any of your questions. Oh, okay. Well, also, in defense of LOL, signaling is different than norms. So just separating that. That is true. Signaling, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, maybe um, it's not an act. Yeah, that's true. But hmm. that's for another day. My question is, though, um, do you think that the outrage amplification problem that we're kind of dealing with is burdened by the size of the communities, that, like, online that we're now dealing with? Because you think about, like, the Salem witch trials as, like, a comparator that was very closeted to, like, a very distinct community. 
that's a great question. And I think, I think one of the concerns, and I'm going to deliberately use the word concern rather than problem about moral outrage online, um, is the scale of it. And, you know, I think there are a lot of cases now where, you know, many people, if if not all people would be worried about the, you know, the fact that a tweet intended for a particular audi audience can be transmitted to a different audience and there can be disproportionate punishment. Um, so the scale of, of the, the response is just like, really not something we have a lot of control over once it gets on the internet. And then of course, once it's on the internet, it lives forever. And this is particularly um, salient in the cases of young people who are involved in online shaming episodes. And I think the balance that we have to find with online moral outrage is on the one hand, it just can be an incredibly powerful tool for collectives to communicate how they think the world ought to be. And I think there are a lot of positive examples that we've seen over the last year, especially around race and gender, where this has been happening. But at the same time, we have to balance that against the need for individuals to be able to learn and change and grow over time. And because internet is forever, especially with young people who are, you know, finding their way in the world with respect to their values. You know, I worry about, you know, lasting reputational consequences for kids who are still figuring it all out. Well, um, I think that that's like a pretty good place to leave it. We put a link to Molly's paper in the chat. Um, a I will do it one more time, hopefully. Yep, there you go. And uh, in the meantime, um, I don't know. I think that next classifier has to go on LOL and then uh, <laughs> actual LOL and then like ROFL and then no, ha -ha. no, no. Wait, <laughs> the actual part is the out loud. It's the OL. Otherwise, you could just use L. L. It's laughing. the part where you say it's out loud when it's not. But it's so makes... unbalanced in text. <laughs> yeah, I don't just... understand. What about like, okay, so there's... How about really CTS? Chuckles to self. That's what you mean. So Ben, are you, are you proposing a ban on LMAO? Because there's never a time where that could be grounded in reality. I hope. Um, yeah, I, I think because there is never a time, it is clearly hyperbole. So uh. it, doesn't, it doesn't leave you wondering as a recipient, is she really? Like, okay. because I, I feel like if I send somebody a text and it makes them burst out laughing, that's a win. I, I like did something that day. Um, and I always like, and when somebody says, LOL, I'm always like, huh, I wonder if that text was really that good. And it just drives me bananas that people use it casually. It seems to me LOL should be high praise. 
It is actually kind of interesting, though, like how, I mean, sometimes I actually do LOL, but then I now add the actually LOLing. And then, like, so. Yeah, you're pretty of, good about it. But also, I laugh at everything. So, you know, well, it's like an easy yeah. mark. <laughs> I feel very safe because I'm usually laughing. Yeah, exactly. You are always laughing. Exactly. Just be like a very good spirited person and then you won't be lying about LOL. Um, on that I think note, a lot of people use LOL just like um. They do. They use it like ha ha. and Because ha 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 and heh sound really like have very different valences. They're all signaling different things like heh is like a snarky and then like ha 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 is like depending on how many ha's. Like if you do like 20 of them, then it's kind of an equivalent to an LOL. Um, but right. And then like the although, new thing, where although you, it takes like, longer. And then I feel like the, the lowest though, is like the, like the whole, like the, the, the little eyes. Button. No, no, no. The button, the button that you can press on a text message. And then you get like a thing and you can type ha ha in like a, it can like recognize, you know, like whatever they call that when you can recognize the text with some type of like in message emoji. That's just like ha ha. Yeah, like no, that it just like attaches on the edge of the on the edge of the. I text think we bubble. should create a that's funny for things that are mildly amusing or I'm amused that people can use instead of LOL, so we can preserve LOL for the situations where people actually laugh out loud. It's it's, it's you know, it's not too much to ask. We yeah, will be well, back really tomorrow. Depressed. Molly Crockett, you're a great American. You have filled us all with moral outrage. We're all going to go express it on the internet, directed at a random stranger who probably doesn't deserve it. We will be back tomorrow with Tim Miller. Because somebody reminded me the other day that it had been a long time since Tim Miller was on the show. You reminded you of that. You reminded you of that. Genevieve was laughing because she was on the text chain. And it was you that reminded you of Tim Miller. <laughs> Somebody who was me reminded me that it had been a while since Tim Miller had been on the show. And it had been a while since Sarah Longwell was on the show. So I sent them both a text that said, who's available? And Tim responded and Sarah didn't. So you're going to have to wait for the uh, for Saturday, uh, Friday for the French Village podcast to hear from Sarah. But you can hear from Tim tomorrow, 22 hours and 59 minutes from now. And until then, Genevieve? We don't have fun anymore, but we have signaling, moral outrage, and normative norms that we should listen to. Yeah. Okay. See you guys later.